0: So the first time Amber and I ever rode the C train here in Calgary, it was Stampede Week. We were going to go to Stampede for the very first time. And some friend who must have been playing a prank on us said, you should take the C train. It's the best way to get down there. And so uh, we, we jump on at the Tuscany station way in the Northwest and we start to ride in. And by the time we get to the city center and then past and on down to the Stampede station, it was like so packed in there. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. This was my first experience with the C train. I've been on subways and trains in other cities, but this was next level, you guys. This was like being in Tokyo. Have you ever seen the guy who like pushes the people in so the doors can close? That's basically what we were experiencing here in Calgary. We were smashed so close to other people that I could smell what some of them had for breakfast. And some of them had a liquid breakfast, if you know what I'm saying. It was an interesting ride down to the stampede. So we jump off, we go ride the ride, see the livestock. We have a good time, but we're old. So it's like 340 and we're like, it's time to knock off. Let's go home. Let's go home. So we jump back on the C train and we, you know, we're going to ride back out to the Northwest to get to the suburbs and get to our house. When we get on the train, 80% of the car is empty. So Amber and I take two empty seats here, and the only other group of people in the car beside us, besides us is a group of senior adults, and they were sitting across the aisle and about two rows in front of us. Now, when I say these were senior adults, you guys, these were senior adults. All of them had completely white hair. They were wearing orthotics. They had canes and walkers. But listen, they just got back from the stampede, okay? So I don't feel bad for them. They were crushing it. They were having the time of their lives there, seriously. So we're we're thinking, okay, it's going to be a very uneventful ride with just us and some, some friends, right? As soon as the doors are about to close at the stampede station, somebody darts onto the train. Now, the person that jumps on is a guy, and he's in his like, late teens, early 20s, and the second he steps on, everybody takes notice of him, and they take notice of him for a couple of different reasons. One is, he had really long hair for a guy, like really long hair, okay? He had a bunch of facial piercings and stuff like that, and homeboy was wearing some eyeshadow. I've got nothing against eyeshadow. If you're a guy, you want to do that thing, that's fine, but like, people notice the other weird thing about him was he was wearing like awkwardly tight clothing, okay? Like super. I'm all for fitted clothes, you guys, but this was too much. It was weird, okay? So, us, you know, we're like, well, I guess I'm glad he made it before the train took off. As soon as the doors closed and the car started rolling, your guy had a boombox in his hand, punk rocker, the guy at the front, he had a boombox in his hand, and he pushed play. And all of a sudden, the loudest death metal music you've ever heard in your entire life started screaming. Like immediately, it was like playing. It was like, Now, I got to tell you guys, that's my kind of music. You can ask anybody who knows me. I write sermons to metal. I'm serious. So it didn't bother me, but you could tell it was really bothering these senior adults. So, you know, we thought at first, okay, maybe he just hit play by accident or something. No, it became very apparent very quickly he was doing this to annoy everybody. So he's just standing there holding his boom box. He's like looking around like this, not making eye contact with anybody, you know. The uh, senior adults across the aisle, they start like clucking their tongues, you know. They're like, oh, kids these days, you know. And we kept thinking, okay, this guy is going to, he, eventually he's going to shut it off. I don't know what his deal is, but eventually he's going to turn it off. Now, we rolled on minute after minute, train station after train station, and your boy is just letting it blare, scream out as loud as he can. So the senior adult starts saying, um, "Excuse me, young man, will you turn that off, please, or will you turn it down? It's too loud. We don't want to hear that kind of music." Your guy just ignores him, pretends like he doesn't hear him. Of course, he hears them. There's nobody else on the train, but he pretends like he doesn't hear them. We get to other train stops, and there are people who are just like walking onto the C train, and the second they get there, they see punk rocker, they hear his crazy music, they sense the tension, and they're like hard pass, and they go find another train. This happened multiple times. I'm totally serious. So after about 15, maybe even close to 20 minutes, one of the older gentlemen gets up out of his seat. He walks down the aisle to Punk Rocker, and Grandpa puts his finger in Punk Rocker's face, and he says, we've asked you to turn that off. Are you going to do it? Punk Rocker literally says, it's a free country. I don't have to do anything you tell me. Faster than a mongoose. Grandpa slaps that boombox out of his hand. It hits the floor and goes into about six different pieces. And Punk Rocker is stunned. You can tell he's never been disciplined in his whole life. He's like. <laughs> At that exact moment, I'm fumbling for my phone. I'm trying to film. World star, you know. <laughs> At that exact moment, we pull into the next train station. Grandpa is not back down. He says, get your stuff and get out. Of course, grandpa didn't say stuff. You know what I mean? So the door's open and Punk Racker, he grabs all his stuff and he goes running out the door. Grandpa's got his chest puffed out. He turns around and every grandma on that train was like, my hero. Now he goes back and sits down and we're all like, whoa, keep in mind, Amber and I were new to the country. So I looked at her and I'm like, dang, Canada doesn't play around. He sits down, they start having this conversation in which all of them start talking about the sorry state of men in our world today. If this is the kind of men that our society is producing in 2020, or this was like 2017, you know, we're all in trouble. It was that sort of thing. Now, look, here's the deal. I'm not celebrating either one of those guys on that train car today. Because quite frankly, I think they both acted pretty badly in this situation. But the reason I tell that story is because the feelings that the senior adults were expressing on that train car that, man, like I'm concerned about the quality of men that are being produced in our world. They're not alone in that fear. There are a lot of single ladies that I've counseled as a pastor. You know, Amber and I have talked to them. And they're like, pastors, where have all the men gone? I can't find a single one. I can find some boys who can shave, but I cannot find a man where are all the men? And I know there are some of you guys, and you're wrestling, and you're like, what does it even mean to be a real man? I mean, I've seen toxic masculinity, and I've seen neutered masculinity. Like, what does it even mean to be a guy in 2020? And so what I want to do in week two here of our series, Love, Sex, and Dating, is that I want to help you to understand what the Bible has to say on the subject, on the topic of masculinity, what biblical manhood might look like, okay? Now, I know some of you guys, especially the ladies, okay? As soon as I say that, you're like, "Ah, oh, come on. I came to church on Man Sunday. Are you kidding me? This is not for me. I shouldn't be here today. Yes, you should, okay? Um, and, and by the way, don't worry, because next Sunday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mansplain to you what biblical womanhood looks like. It's going to be a lot of fun, I can tell you that. I'm really looking forward to this message. So anyway... But here's the deal. The reason that I'm glad you're here if you're a woman, if a guy, it's obvious, okay? We're going to be talking about man stuff today. But if you're a lady, I'm glad you're here. And the reason I'm glad you're here is because in truth, we're going to need your help in being the men that God called us to be. We're going to need some help, okay? It's not your responsibility. It's our responsibility. But what we need from you ladies is when you see healthy masculinity in our world and in our church, I want you to affirm it. I want you to say, now that's husband material right there. That's what I'm talking about. And if you see toxic masculinity in your workplace or even in our church, for goodness sake, I want you to call it out. I want you to say, no, 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 no. God expects more out of you. I'm not going to let you treat me this way. This is not the way that my kids are going to be raised, all right? So if you get a a solid sense of healthy manhood, healthy masculinity, then you can help us to perpetuate it and hopefully spread it uh, throughout the rest of the world. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dive right into a single Bible going We spend our entire time this morning on one verse, and the reason is because it is so good, it is so deep and rich that I couldn't possibly cover any more than this one sentence from the scripture this morning. But here's the cool thing: I believe this one scripture kind of it gives us a really solid starting place for what it means to to be a man in 2020. It gives us a really sto- a solid understanding of what God would like to see in my life and in your life. So the scripture is 1 Timothy chapter number two. We'll put it here on the screen. You can read along there, or you can read along in your Bible if you want to. First Timothy chapter number two, verse eight. There's a guy named Paul that's, that's writing here. And Paul was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He was a church planter. So he went all around the Mediterranean rim in, in you know, the first century starting new churches. And he got to this one church and he installed a young man named Timothy to be the pastor of this church. And then after he had trained Timothy for a little while, Paul went on to start other churches in other places. But he got word that there was some tension happening back in Timothy's church. And part of the tension was there was beef between men and women. There was a lot of disagreement about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a woman when we follow Jesus. And so Paul writes a couple of letters that we know as 1 and 2 Timothy. And part of what he wants to do in this letter is help give a solid understanding of what biblical manhood and biblical womanhood might look like. So he says here in this verse, 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 8, he says, I want men. I want men. He's talking to guys this morning, all right? Now, a lot of times when you see the word men or man in the Bible, it means everybody, all of humanity. It includes both males and females, okay? But in this particular case, the word that he uses here just means men. So Paul says, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. And then he says, I want them to be free from anger and controversy. So Paul starts out, he's going to give you an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a biblical man, whatever, you know, however we might want to define that. He's going to give you a sense of what that entails. And he starts by saying, men should lift their hands in prayer to God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I can kind of understand the prayer side of this, right? Sure, like if you're going to be a biblical man, you should pray, totally. But what's the significance of this whole lifting your hands thing? What does that mean? I see people doing it on Sunday mornings; It's kind of bizarre. What's that all about? Well, we've mentioned before that lifted hands simultaneously symbolize two different things. So lifted hands symbolize victory, And at the same time, they symbolize surrender. This one gesture communicates victory and surrender. So it communicates victory in the sense that, like, think back to last Sunday afternoon, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Kansas City Chiefs, in the final minutes of the fourth quarter, score the go-ahead touchdown. What do you think every Chiefs uh, fan on the planet did? Yes, that's my team! Victory, right? Raised hands, communicate victory. But raised hands also communicate surrender. Think about a police officer saying, come out with your hands up. This same gesture communicates both victory and surrender at the exact same time. So Paul is telling us, he's giving us the bottom line. He's given us the thing that we're going to circle back to at the end of the message. The thing that you really need to know, fellas and ladies too. Victory in life is found in surrender to God. Victory in life is found in surrender to God. Hey, this is why people lift hands here on Sunday mornings. A few minutes ago in the worship, you're like, why are these people dancing? Why are they lifting their hands? Are they just airing out the pits? No, we're doing this because when we lift our hands, we are simultaneously communicating our surrender to Christ and our victory through him over sin and evil in our world. One gesture communicates both of those things. So again, we're gonna come back to this idea of victory through surrender at the end of the message. But for the meat of our time this morning, I wanna focus on the other part of Paul's statement here in verse number eight. Oh my gosh, you guys, it is so stinking good. Look at what he says here. He says, I want men to lift their hands, holy hands lifted up to God. I want them to pray with holy hands lifted up from God, free from anger and controversy. Now, I got to tell you, when I was prepping for this message, I kind of got hung up on this last phrase. I was like, I mean, I guess I get it. I can understand why Paul would tell guys, don't be angry. Don't stir up unnecessary controversy and things like that. But you know what? Anger and controversy are not uniquely male problems. You guys know that, right? Like there are a lot of angry chicks in the world. There are a lot of chicks that are about to throw blows if you say the wrong thing to them. And there are a lot of women in the world who love controversy. Just log on to Facebook, you guys. Seriously, did you know that essential oils will cure a decapitation? Here, read this article that nobody's ever... Okay, here's it's a joke, you guys. I love essential oils. We've got like 11 diffusers in our house. I'm a believer. I love them. I'm just kidding. But the reality is if you want to find women who love controversy, it's not hard. So why does Paul single out men and say, don't be angry and don't be controversial? I got so hung up on this question that I went old school preacher on this this week. I did a deep dive word study, Greek study. I don't really do a lot of that. Um, But the reality is I was like, there's something here What is it? And after I started to understand what Paul was doing and saying, my mind was blown, you guys. Like I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to share this with people on Sunday morning. So what I discovered is that Paul, who originally wrote his um, manuscript, this letter, he wrote it in Greek. He didn't write it in English. And so he uses a couple of Greek words here that have a lot of meaning that isn't communicated in the English translation necessarily. So you can see here I've put the Greek transliteration of the word up on the screen. And you can probably notice from those two Greek words there that we get a couple of very interesting English words from those Greek words. Do you see them? Can you pull them out? We're going to talk about those this morning because I think they've got a lot to teach us about what it means to be a real man who follows after Jesus. So let's start with this first phrase here where Paul says, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger. So that word there, you might notice, we get another English word from. The Greek word is orge. If you can't figure out what the uh, English word is, then ask your neighbor, they'll tell you. It's okay to say it in church because it's in the Bible. Now here's the deal, okay? Paul begins by telling men that they need to get rid of, deal with the anger that's in their life. But the interesting thing is, the word he uses has in our language, and it turns out it had in his language as well, a sexual meaning to it. And that probably seems like a really weird thing. Like, why would Paul use a word that communicates both anger and sex at the same time? It might strike you as strange. It struck me as strange until I started giving it some more thought. And then I realized, dang, Paul's a genius. He knows what he's doing here. This is really, really good. So he's going to make a comparison or a connection between sex and anger. Or we might call it sex- and violence. And so what he says is like, think about sex. Okay. This first thing I'm about to say might surprise you. Sex is a good thing. It is a gift from our God. Like I just imagine with Adam and Eve, God is like, oh, by the way, here's sex. You guys are going to love me for this. This is incredible. <laughs> It is a good gift from God. It is something that we are meant to enjoy. It is meant to be a blessing. And then God says, but the way it's going to be at its very best for you guys is if you use it in focused relationship. If you make a lifelong commitment, you save it and share it with just one person, it is going to be at its best. It's always gonna be fun, but it will be next level fun. If you can keep it intimate between you and your spouse, that's God's design and plan. Now he uses this Greek word here in which he describes a situation in which people do not focus and keep intimate their sex. Instead, they just give it indiscriminately to anybody. It doesn't even matter who it is. They just like, let's go, let's do it. Right? So here's the thing. Paul says, God's given us this good gift that should bring you intimacy with the person you love. It should build you up and it should be one of the greatest things you can ever experience. Now, the problem is people will use it indiscriminately. Instead of keeping it private, they make it public. They give it to people that they have no connection to. And what happens is this very selfless act that God has given us becomes primarily selfish. What do I get? How do I enjoy this? How can I experience every different kind and type and all that different stuff, right? And so what he says is this thing that was supposed to be good and it was supposed to be edifying, instead it becomes destructive and harmful. Now he's comparing that to anger. And the things that he just said about sex are also true of anger. You guys might be surprised to know that anger is not a sin. It's not. God gets angry. The Bible tells us that we can be angry and not sin. The problem isn't that we get angry. The problem is we get angry about the wrong things. Let's be real for a moment. God wants us to be angry about injustice, but we get angry about inconvenience. We get mad when we don't get our way. But God says, I want you guys to get angry when I'm not getting my way in the world. See? And so this thing that is supposed to have a good and proper focus and it's actually supposed to make the world a better place because particularly us as men, we don't control it well. We don't know how to wrangle it in. We just spew it. We get mad. We curse. We resort to violence. And so Paul is using this incredibly dense word. And what he's doing here is he is shining a spotlight on one type of man that our world is creating. He says that our world, will tell us that in order to be a man, you have got to conquer. You have got to conquer. You're the warrior. You're the alpha. Bro, do you even lift? You walk around like this, you know what I'm saying? It's true. Paul says that our world creates a group of men who believe their calling is to conquer women through sex and to conquer men through violence. You see how good this word is that he uses here? How layered and meaningful it is on a whole bunch of different levels. I mean, it just blows my mind. Paul says, look, if we're not careful, we can let an unhealthy concept of masculinity produce a bunch of men who believe their job is to go out and conquer the world. Now, you've seen these guys, okay? They're the ones who hang truck nuts from their trailer hitch. You know what I'm saying? They're the ones who flex on all the haters, It's true. (laughs) They're They're the guys who like slap around other guys for annoying them on the C train. They believe their job is to conquer the world and they're gonna use sex and they're gonna use violence in order to do it. This is not new. It happened in Paul's day, but we still see it playing out in our world today. I'm a 90s kid. Anybody else a 90s kid? Like I grew up, you know, childhood in the 80s, teenage years in the 90s. Anybody remember the grunge rock band Bush? It's one of my wife's favorite bands. I like love her in spite of this fact, but she really loves this band, okay? And they have a song and the chorus, the refrain in the song is, there's no sex in your violence. They're conflating those two things, just like Paul did. Maybe you're like, bro, 90s grunge band, what is wrong with you? Can we make a a current music reference, please? Okay, what about my guy, Kendrick Lamar? I love Kendrick, he's such a good rapper, right? What does he say? He says, if I gotta go slap somebody... I'm going to make it look sexy. What's he doing? By the way, I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly what he said. He's saying, I will conquer the world through violence and sex. And my violence is going to be sexy and my sex is going to be violence. He is manifesting what Paul called out thousands of years ago. This sense of what it means to be a man. I'm going to conquer the world. And if you stand in my way, you will fall before me. So then Paul pivots, okay? So he's talking about anger. He's talking about this, you know, interesting Greek word, orge. And then he pivots and he starts talking about a second group of men that our world creates. And he says here in the next phrase, he says, I want these men to pray with lifted hands to God. I want them to be free from anger and I want them to be free from controversy. Now you might notice the Greek word here, dialogismos, we get the English word dialogue from. So you might read that and think, oh, well, Paul is like saying, don't be like these guys. Be like these guys who are sweet and verbal and poetic and they want to talk all the time and things. Nope, that's not what he's doing either. In fact, the way that Paul uses this word dialogismus, what he's doing is he's talking about a type of man who has an inner dialogue that he cannot let go of. This is a kind of guy who is so paralyzed by his lack of self-identity, his fears about himself and his inadequacies that he will never take a step forward in life. He's a guy who doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do with himself. He has a great deal of trouble expressing his emotions. He feels incredibly misunderstood in the world. He's a very sweet guy. There's no doubt about it. He's probably super thoughtful. And if you could get him healthy, he might even be a better husband than these alphas that are out there. He's the guy who's like, oh, if the girls in my life could just see what a good guy I am, they would dump the bad boy and they would get with the good guy, right? They have an inner dialogue that paralyzes them from moving forward. Now, here's the deal. In our world, we like to make fun of these guys, okay? And, and, and I, I get it. There are some things that they need a swift kick in the pants for, just like the alphas do, although the alphas are going to fight you afterwards. So here's the thing, okay? We really want to give these guys a hard time, but they're not as pathetic as our society likes to paint them because, okay, what they're doing is they're reacting to the toxic masculinity that they see from the alphas, So what these guys are doing is they're like, I see how much chaos and violence and evil comes from men that are trying to conquer the world. And so they don't define themselves by conquering, they define or by conquest, they define themselves by contrast. And so they don't know who they are, they really don't know what, what their role is in the world or how to interact with people and all that, but the one thing they do know is they're not that. They're not that kind of guy. I'm not that. Now we call them betas in contrast to the alpha. Some of them refer to themselves that way, right? But this is the two type of men that we end up with in our world. We end up with the manly man, the alpha. And then we end up with the guy who is like, I could never be that. I don't want to be that. And he essentially gives up on any sort of healthy masculinity because he's reacting to the unhealthy masculinity. So what Paul does, and oh my gosh, you guys, this is so incredibly good. In two tiny words, Paul actually sets up the problem of masculinity that has been plaguing humanity since the very beginning. He says, we essentially create men, and on one end of the spectrum, they are all about conquest, they are all about sex and violence, they're all about toxic masculinity at its worst. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we've got these guys and they're paralyzed by indecision and they're not sure of who they are and they're afraid of taking a step forward because they don't want to be like those guys. And at its worst, at its worst, we get the incel movement. We get violence and rage from these guys. So it's like no matter which direction we go, we end up in the same place. Pissed off men who can't have relationships who can't make any sort of difference in the world. Now, here's what's so fascinating to me. The majority of you guys, the majority of us, we're in the middle somewhere. And we know that the bro is not who we're supposed to be. That's not ideal. In fact, it's pretty unhealthy, at least to some awful things, Me Too movement, things like that. On this side, we know we don't want to be these guys who are essentially, you know, these are toxic males, these are neutered males. We don't want to be these guys. And it's like, We know neither one is correct, but we have no clue how to move forward because really our world only paints two pictures. You're gonna be this guy or you're gonna say, no, I'll never be that guy. And we're left wondering, you ladies are left wondering, where did all the men go? Why is everything so extreme in our world? Why can I not find a good, healthy guy in 2020? I think, I think, if we look back to what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, we can start to see a third way forward. We can start to see a definition of masculinity that isn't about alphas and betas. It's not about conquest and contrast. It is about something entirely different. We'll say it's Christ. Look at this verse again. Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. He says, Your world is going to tell you guys that you will find victory through surrender in either this conquest mindset or this contrast mindset. You're going to surrender to some paradigm of manhood, okay? But he says, The paradigm you want to surrender to is not conquest, it's not contrast, it's Christ. He is the one that you should pattern yourself after and take your cues from. This is the only way, you guys, that we will avoid the extremes of toxic masculinity in our world. This is the only way that we will get beyond alphas and betas and incels and womanizers and all those different things is if we stop taking our cues from the extreme and we start taking our cues from Christ. So here's what I want to do. Like, I know, like, okay, up to this point, this has been a lot of maybe philosophy, maybe some theology, maybe some worldview building, but like, where the handles stand? How do we make this practical? I'm a man. I want to be a man, or I want to find a good man. What am I looking for? Let me give you three thoughts that I hope will help as you, you know, kind of understand, comprehend what it means to be a man from a biblical perspective. The first one is this, qualities of biblical manhood. A real man, and guys, I'm going to put real men in quotes because I get it. That's a loaded term, and I'm just using it for the ease of communication in the moment. All right, A quote-unquote real man is in control of his impulses rather than allowing his impulses to control him. I think this is like foundational to what it means to be a healthy man. It's also foundational to what it means to be a healthy woman. The scriptures are full of teachings about the dangers of living a life in which you cannot control your emotions or your impulses scriptures are filled with all of this wisdom about like the damage you're going to do to your family the damage you're going to do to yourself the damage you're going to do to the world if you just let your desires run unchecked if you just do whatever you want to do the scripture tells us we are in for a world of destruction one of my favorite verses that kind of highlights this is proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 we won't have it on the screen i'm just going to read it to you um the the writer in proverbs says a person without self-control is like a city with broken down gates. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down gates. So he's using this ancient metaphor, and I get it. We don't really have city gates today, but think about this. In ancient times, if there was a city and it had walls around it, the walls provided both an identity and a security to its citizens. We are part of the city. This is us. These are my neighbors. We belong together. We are one tribe. And then it provided this protection so that people just couldn't come in and do what they wanted to in the city. There was a sense of identity and protection with the city walls. Now, Paul says, imagine a city in which the walls have been broken down. There's no sense of identity anymore, and there's no sense of security and safety. Nothing to stop people from coming in and taking what they want, and nothing to prevent the citizens from going out and doing whatever they want to do. He says, if you cannot control your emotions and impulses in this world, you're like somebody who has no healthy boundaries. You're going to find yourself venturing out and doing things that you're shocked to see yourself do. And because you don't have these walls, this sense of of healthy boundaries, there are going to be people that come into your life and they're going to take from you things that they have no right to take, but you've got no protection against them because you don't have any walls. You don't have any self-control. So guys, I just wanna ask you, and and women, I'm asking you too, but I'm just gonna point it to the men's. I've asked myself this question for days on end in preparation for this. Are you in control? Are you in control of your impulses and emotions or do your impulses and emotions control you? Are you in control of your temper? Are you in control of your spending? Are you in control of your desires? Can you say no to yourself when you really want to say yes? I'll give you a pro tip, fellas. This is maybe, I don't know if anybody's ever told you something or if you've ever thought about it like this before, but this is so key and critical. Okay, you want a woman to say yes. Maybe you're a single guy, maybe you're married and you, know, you just want a deeper, more intimate relationship with your, your other. Um, you want a woman to say yes to you. Can I tell you, women will not say yes to you until they sense that you are able to say no to yourself. I'm gonna say it one more time. Women will not say yes to you until they have a sense that you have learned to say no to yourself. Now, the reason is not because women are mean, okay? The reason is because women, I don't know what it is about you guys. You're so much smarter than we are. You know intuitively what takes some of us men lifetimes to learn, that is, that at the heart of love and romance is saying no to yourself so that you can say yes to somebody else. Okay. If you continue to say yes to yourself, you will not be able to say yes to somebody else. In reality, you can only ultimately say yes to one person at a time. So if you're saying yes to you, you can't say yes to her. She knows it bro. That's why she's like, I'm not going for that guy. I don't trust him. He can't say no to himself. He's never gonna be able to say yes to me. So guys and ladies too, I think the Bible calls us to get in control of our impulses rather than living like animals that are just driven by the impulses inside of us. Okay, second thing, second quality of a biblical man. I think a real man can be independent without sacrificing his interdependence. Okay, so um, uh, like Paul highlights these two extremes of masculinity, right? So we've got the alphas, we've got the betas. On the alpha side, we've got guys who are like, I'm a self-made man. I don't need you, I don't need her, I take care of mine. And they're the guys who get mad. They're like, what, you can't take care of your own self? What's wrong with you, Right? They're like, I, am, I stand on my own two feet. I don't want or need anybody else. I will prove to you that I am independent. I can handle things myself. And they look down on anybody who's not in their shoes. Then the flip side of that, on the other extreme, we've got these guys and they're so paralyzed by their lack of identity, their fear of stepping out and saying the wrong thing or becoming that guy over there that they have a failure to launch. And they're like, I, I just, I don't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do in life. And so they never become independent. They remain fully dependent. We might call it codependent on family or some, some past relationship that they can't get past, whatever it might be. So we've got this, this society that's creating men. And they are either banking on their independence or they are relying on their dependence. And the whole time, God is calling us to interdependence. He's calling us men to be able to step up and stand on our own two feet. You should get to the point where you don't need anybody else to provide for your basic needs. And you shouldn't be bitter if you have to step up and provide for somebody else's basic needs. God is calling you to recognize that you can step out. You can move into the next stage of your life. I know you're scared. I know you don't feel like you have it together, but you can with God's help. You don't have to stay at home forever. You don't have to die a boy. You can grow up and you can make a difference in the world. Both of these extremes are wrong. Instead, Paul says, recognize your interdependence, your dependence on one another, your dependence on God, and then recognize God has also called you to stand up, to act like, men and to leave a legacy in the world. Again, if I could just speak for women, and this is a bad idea. I know. I'll probably get some emails on this one. But like, I just, guys, I don't think a woman wants a man that is forever trying to prove himself. Like, just eventually that gets obnoxious. It gets tiresome. It's selfish. And I also don't think that women are looking for a man that's forever trying to find himself. Like, eventually, they're like, just you know, learn who you are, be comfortable with who you are. You may not be the handsomest man on the planet. You may not have the best, you know, physique or the the best paycheck or whatever. But you know what? Own you. And if you would do that, then they would respect you a lot more. And if you would quit trying to dominate everybody and prove that you're a man, they would respect you a lot more too. I just believe Christ offers us this third way that is not based on independence or dependence. It's based on interdependence. All right, last thing. Last quality here of a biblical man. I think a real man patterns his life after Christ rather than the men around him. Do you guys realize that Jesus, he is the healthiest example of masculinity that ever walked the planet? He is. Jesus was not an alpha. He was not a beta. He was something altogether different. Do you realize, yes, Jesus had the best qualities Of this kind of man and the best qualities of this kind of man. And he didn't have any of the weaknesses that are associated with those things. The Bible tells us that Jesus was kind and generous. The Bible tells us that Jesus was meek. And when somebody attacked him, he was able to turn the other cheek. The Bible tells us that Jesus. He didn't have trouble expressing his emotions. He was willing to be vulnerable and to speak things that you would say, oh, the son of God shouldn't say stuff like that, but he was okay with that. Jesus was good with children, right? but don't get it twisted. Do you realize this same Jesus who was all of these things, he also stormed into the temple with a whip and he flipped the tables of the money changers. There were a couple of different times in his life in ministry when he went toe to toe with the mother freaking devil and he walked out victorious. So look, I'm just saying that we as men, we've got to start taking our cues from Christ and not from culture. Stop patterning yourself after CGI action movies and braggadocio rap and Reddit threads. Start patterning yourself as men after the true man, Jesus, our Savior. Our world needs men who look like Christ. I don't know what Jesus looked like I don't know if he's handsome I don't know if he was muscular I don't know what sort of chariot he drove but I know that Jesus didn't need any of those things in order to be a man and neither do you your family needs a man who looks like Christ and I'll just be straight with you our church needs men who look like Christ so you're saying, "Well, Dan, that sounds good, man, and I want to do that. I really do. Like I I want to be a healthy man. I don't want to give into this extreme. I certainly don't want to give into this extreme. But how? I'm so confused. I've tried before, and it's like no matter what, I struggle with the same stuff. I fall into the same traps and habits and sins, and I don't even know what to do." Well, the, the good news here is the answer is really simple. It's not easy, but it is really simple. Okay? Most of the time, us men, we get it wrong. You might hear me up on stage and I'm doing this teaching here or you read a self-help book or something like that. and, And you hear somebody saying, okay, there are these vices in your life and you need to deal with them. So the way that you might hear me say, the way that you're gonna deal with them is to learn to love those things less. So if you say, Dan, my weakness is women, bro. I just love women so much. And so what I hear you saying is, I need to learn to love women less. You might say, Dan, my weakness is money. I love buying stuff. I love the power it affords me. People respect me when I drive this kind of car. And so what you're telling me is I need to learn to love money less. Maybe your deal is whiskey. Maybe your deal is, I don't know, whatever. Okay. But you're like, I guess what you're telling me, Dan, is somehow I've got to learn to love these things less, but I've tried and I've failed. And that's because the key is not learning to love these things less. The key is learning to love Jesus more. Oh man. Ladies and gentlemen, don't, worry about these vices right now really and truly ignore them you 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 just set them to the side they can still be present you can still be struggling with them whatever don't tell yourself that i have got to overcome these things instead focus your attention on jesus if you would learn to love jesus more than anything if you would turn your eyes upon jesus If you would look full into his wonderful face, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You don't need to learn to love women less. You need to learn to love Jesus more. You don't need to learn to to love this less. Learn to love Christ more. If you would just go every day, okay, I'm not going to try to quit doing these things. Instead, I'm gonna put every effort and energy I have into learning to love Jesus more. If you could figure out what that means, all of this stuff would fade into the background and then eventually into oblivion. This is the key for moving forward, fellas. Victory is found in surrender to Christ. That's why he says here, put the verse on the screen one final time. I want men to pray. I want men to lift holy hands to God. And when you do that, you will find rescue from the false beliefs about masculinity that you've been told your whole life, and you will find power to walk in the ways of Christ. If you try to do it on your own, fellas, you're gonna end up miserable. Your wife is gonna end up miserable. You cannot white knuckle your way to biblical manhood. But if you will surrender to Christ in prayer, you will find victory in Christ for every single area of your life. I want to pray for you guys. And if this is you, I want you to pray right along with me. I want you to surrender to Jesus and I want you to find victory in him. Lord God, for every man and woman that's here this morning, for myself most of all, God, help us to love Jesus more than anything. Help our love for our Savior to God, reveal to us the ways in which we bought into false ideas about what it means to be a man or a woman or human. And God, I pray that we would be reflections of Jesus in this church, in our families, in our workplaces, and around the world. God, we surrender to our Savior today. and We claim victory in his name. Amen.